Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Adam Christensen who's running for office in Florida's 3rd Congressional District. Adam Christensen, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, you know, this is, I think this is going to be fun. You're running in a Republican-controlled district. What made you decide to take on that seat? Oh, these are my people, man. Like, I, look, I grew up as a Republican. Like, I grew up in the Midwest, and, like, my entire family's, uh, like, as conservative as they come. Um, and, you know, at, at this point, I like, I live in Florida, and nobody thought seven months ago that this district, number one, could flip. Or that anyone could actually run a successful campaign here that actually would put the fear of God into people. And so, like, I am, like, it is a lot of fun to be running. It's a lot of fun to be doing what we're doing right now. Um, and, you know, I mean, the things that made me run, I, I saw that Ted Yoho, he's, he's retiring. But at the same time, like, his donors are not retiring. His backing is not retiring. Like, his entire infrastructure, it's going to be here. And so unless you actually go in and you demolish that, unless you actually tear that down, nothing will ever fundamentally change. We're just going to put up a new name with a new face, the same ideology, and nothing will change. Because, I mean, really, that's how politics works. And so for me, especially here, I almost didn't feel like I had a choice. I almost felt like, you know, if, if we're not actually going to be able – if somebody's not going to be able to actually put up a fight to actually go and, and speak to people that – you know, and in the language that they understand and actually show them that, number one, we care. Somebody cares whether or not you live or die and somebody cares about whether or not you have a decent life. I think that's number one. And for me, I mean, that's I, 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 I don't own a home. <laughs> like I'm still renting. Um, I may never own a home. But for me, I didn't see anyone who was going to actually speak for people like me. I didn't see anyone who cared about my friends, my neighbors my generation and so for me i didn't feel like i had a choice that point you make there about not owning a home actually comes into a video you recently retweeted of representative ilhan omar and representative alexandra casio cortez talking about the fact that the they understand the issues that renters are facing particularly during this current crisis because they themselves are renters they don't own a house either do you think that's part of the problem that exists in congress at the moment that there are too many politicians there who don't understand the issues real people face because they're not suffering the same problems. They're not part of the same type of situation that many of their constituents, the people they claim to represent, are in. How many people in Washington know what it's like to have 68 cents in your bank account and wonder whether or not you're going to get evicted? I know what that's like. Like, I've been there. I, I, mean, I don't think just about anyone in, in Congress does. And until you actually understand what it's like for normal people, what it's like for, for people like us, you will never be able to represent us. And right now we have a – basically you don't get to Washington unless 
your family has money or unless you can find some rich people to buy you a spot. And if that's the only people we're going to send to Washington, of course government doesn't work for people like us. Of course no one's fighting for us. I mean, we saw Governor what Cuomo the other day. He basically said that he's not for attacks on millionaires or billionaires because the only people he talks to are the people that are in the Hamptons. And the only people he talks to are people who have millions of dollars. And my response to that is, well, of course that's who you're going to represent. If that's the only people you know, those are the only problems you know. And let's be honest, they don't have that many problems. This seat is currently held by Representative Ted Yoho. And while he's not going to be the individual that you, if successful in this primary, would face in November, he is the individual who holds that seat. And his approach to politics is something that the Republican Party in that seat would most likely continue following his decision to leave Washington. He recently made headlines when Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez revealed that he accosted her and called her words that probably aren't fit to use on this podcast, let alone against a sitting member of Congress on the steps of the U.S. Capitol building. When you hear that the current incumbent is acting in that manner against another elected official, how does that make you feel? (laughs) Well, first, my first response was, um, oh, he did not just do that. And my second response was, does he know what's going to happen by doing that? This guy, this is who he is. This is nothing new. This is not, like, it's shocking. It's not surprising for people who know who this is. I mean, the dude, he's one of the only four people who voted against making lynching a federal crime. Like, he stated publicly that the Civil Rights Act is unconstitutional. Like, he doesn't think that the ERA should happen. He doesn't think there should be a Survivor's Bill of Rights. Like, this is just a long line, a long stream of things that he has done that would make any normal human being go, who are you? Like, Number one, if I saw somebody do that on the street, I I would be like, who, wh- why? And number two, you're in Congress. And so what we understand is that, that, number one, just because he's crass and he actually does things now apparently out loud that he's been doing for years and now people are starting to take notice does not mean that he has not done these kinds of things before. And until we start to understand that this is a much larger issue – We're actually getting to the root of problems. Like we are seeing ideology in motion. The man voted and has voted 100% of the time for big businesses, not small businesses, not farms, not family farms, big businesses. Every single time he has voted as he has voted to raise taxes on the middle class, like 90% of the time, every, almost every single time he has voted is to raise taxes on the middle class. It's an ideology. It is not one instance. We just saw a really bad instance where he screwed up publicly and politically, but he does this all the time. And so we have to actually, number one, understand that. Number two, understand that how somebody votes is a reflection on their characters and their morals. And then we need to actually elect people who have characters and morals, not just when it's convenient and not just when they can get votes from it. That's the idea that it's reflective of his character is shown in the fact that Representative Yoho behaved in that manner because he believes in his own words that Representative Ocasio-Cortez's views are, quote, unbelievable and, quote, disgusting. Why do you think Republicans are getting so worked up about progressive ideas such as those put forward by yourself 
and those put forward by the congresswoman from New York. You know what's disgusting? What's disgusting is that kids are at school hungry. What's disgusting is that children are being ripped from their parents' arms and put into cages by an unregulated government agency. What's disgusting is the fact that we may have close to 25 to 28 million people homeless. What's disgusting is the fact we have a thousand deaths a day. What is disgusting is everything that this man has voted for that led us to this point. So I don't want to hear him say that somebody's views are disgusting when at the end of the day, he and his buddies and their tax giveaways and their corporate welfare are the reason that we are in this position. I think that corporate welfare is disgusting. I think corporate socialism is disgusting. I think the fact that people go and buy two to three yachts while we have childhood poverty is disgusting. So I really think that his use of the word disgusting, it's not my definition of the word disgusting. And I think he needs to go back to the dictionary and actually figure out what that word means. Let's talk about some of the positive progressive visions that you have for the district and for the country as a whole. Your website states that you're, quote, fighting for working families like yours. During the coronavirus outbreak, we've seen working families in America struggle even more than previously to make ends meet. And there's now a looming eviction crisis that's starting to occur due to rents that people can't pay unable to work due to the ongoing health crisis. What should the government be doing right now to address this and protect people from being kicked out of their homes simply because they can't work due to a government's failure to protect its citizens from a global pandemic? For the last 40 years, we have had an economic system called trickle-down economics where all the money is given to the top, and apparently at some point it's supposed to get down to the bottom. But what we realize, especially now, is that just simply does not work. And so what I propose, what I think we should have done at the beginning, was start at the bottom, and maybe the money trickles upwards. I think that we should have done what Canada, what Spain has done, and basically say, hey, every single person, here's $2,000 a month, pay your rent, buy food. Make sure that everything is taken care of because the fact that you're able to have that money and do that means the banks will be okay, which means all the other companies will be okay and like we'll be fine. But no, what did they do? They gave money to the biggest companies. They gave money to the banks, but that doesn't help people pay mortgages. That's just a sugar high. That's the bandaid over a big issue because those banks are still going to go after people for the money that they're owed on their mortgage or their home. We should have actually started in a place that would have provided stability. We should have started with the fundamentals, the basics, and we didn't. We just gave a ton of money to the people at the top. And so what we should have done is take care of people, made sure that people were going to be able to stay in their homes, make sure that people were able to be fed, and start there. And so we need to have emergency UBI of $2,000 a month at this point just to get through this crisis. On top of that, we need a federal jobs guarantee once it is taken care of so that people can act on their feet. I mean, we just saw $600 uh, for unemployment benefits federally expire because people were like, well, if you're on unemployment, then you're making more than if you're working. And my response to that is, then shouldn't the people who are working make a lot more money? Because if the people that are on unemployment are barely surviving and people who are working every single day are making less than that, then we have a fundamental issue 
where the people who are working are not making enough to survive. And so that is where you have to actually focus. Those are the, you have to bring it back. You cannot play to Republican talking points. You cannot play to these corporate wings on both sides talking points of, well, the only reason that, you know, the only thing that you should be really hoping for in your life is survival. No, no more of that. We've seen that Congress has said that policies like what you were talking about there, UBI or a federal jobs guarantee, these policies cost too much. But what's your thoughts on this when you see situations like the current coronavirus package that's being debated in Congress containing $686 million for F-35s, whereas Congress is currently refusing to recertify unemployment benefits that are $600 a week for Americans who are out of work. Cost too much? <laughs> cost, cost who too much? What? You just gave, what, $6 trillion away for no reason whatsoever to buy shitty debt from some hedge fund that, with, that, 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 that went and bought crap? I, wh what? I'm sorry, but... What world do these people live in where that is the first thing that they think, oh, it costs too much. It costs too much to prevent a pandemic. Oh, okay, so you, you like paying for the effects of the pandemic. You don't like paying to prevent those things when it costs like, I don't know, five to ten times more to be reactive than proactive. It costs too much. The only thing that people who say that are is number one they're terrible at business number two they have no idea what the hell they're talking about and number three honestly these are the same people that wrecked the economy 12 years ago they should never have been given a voice to talk about economics ever again so i don't care what they think i don't care what they're talking about they don't have a say they should have zero power whatsoever and honestly i don't give a single thing that they say a grain of salt one of the reasons that this health outbreak has been so severe and is ongoing is in part, many people believe, due to the lack of protections for workers who become ill, the ability for them to take, for example, pay, which means that they either have to show up to work and infect others or miss work and not get paid. Pay that, as we mentioned, when you're struggling to make ends meet, when you live paycheck to paycheck can mean the difference between being able to put food on the table or pay rent. How critical do you believe it is to introduce paid sick leave for all American employees, not just during the current crisis that we're seeing, but to protect against other situations in the future? Well, it's insane that we don't have that. I mean, as we all know, if one person doesn't have health care in the middle of a pandemic, then everyone is at risk. It doesn't matter if you have health care. If one person doesn't, you're, you're not safe. And so what it blows my mind is the fact that, you know, paid sick leave, paid family leave, all of these different things are actually beneficial and they would save us money, but they wouldn't save certain people the right kinds of money. And so therefore they're not popular with certain kinds of people. And so at this point, you know, the preventative measures that we could have had, we should have had, and most of the rest of the world had, they helped make sure that the virus didn't become uncontrollable. Here in the United States, we don't have those things because apparently it's not worth investing in our futures anymore. And it's not worth investing in making sure that things like this don't happen, which just means that the people that are in charge in making those decisions are just dumb. I mean, they're bad at business. That's simply what it is. They're bad at financial decisions. And I think that at this point, people are sick of them. I think people understand that. Most people, I mean, if you use common sense, 
you understand that it's better to prevent something from happening than just reacting to something happening and trying to fix it after the fact. Like everybody knows this, but for some reason, the people that were put in Washington, and a lot of it is what we talked about at the very beginning, they've never had to deal with these things. They don't know what it's like to need paid sick leave or need paid family leave. Like they don't know because they've never been in a situation where that's mattered. And so until we replace them, until we actually stand up and say, look, uh, the reason we want these things, the reason we want to own a home is because we can't own a home. Like that's the reason it matters is because like we can't do those things. And so I think that if we're able to fix some of those things, we wouldn't be dealing with the issues, a lot of the issues that we have right now. Owning a home is something that for a lot of young Americans and even people around the world is a distant dream due to the issues that exist in the housing market. And when you see that individuals find themselves homeless, including over 50,000 U.S. veterans, people sleeping on the streets, even though they serve their country and were told that their country in turn would serve them. How does America begin to address what's clearly a crisis in the housing market currently, which is only going to get worse? So there's two parts to this that I think about um, pretty regularly. One is, you know, just like you mentioned, there's so many people on the streets. 15% of the people on the streets have a full-time job. They just can't afford to live anywhere. And on top of that, <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it's insane to me that people don't understand that if you want stability, if you want to be able to build a life, if you want to be able to get better at things, you have to have stability. And the very first place that starts is having a roof over your head. Most of our problems, most of the problems that occur, mental health and a lot of things, are simply because of stress. Well, what is less stressful, having a roof over your head or living on the street, not knowing whether or not it's going to rain on you each night? And so you have to make sure that you take care of the basic necessities first. And a lot of these issues resolve themselves or never become as severe as they are. On top of that, we're talking about the fact that right now, I mean, it looks like our housing market's good. Our housing market is terrible. Let's be honest here. You have an entire generation. You have a couple generations right now that were saddled with predatory debt, anywhere from thirty to two hundred thousand dollars that they got at the age of seventeen. They weren't able to buy tobacco, weren't able to buy uh, alcohol, weren't able to serve in the military. But for some reason, we have decided that we're going to allow predatory companies to prey on people and give them two hundred thousand dollars of debt before they are before they turn the age of eighteen. And what that does is for the next 20, 30 years, or if they're ever able to repay that debt, they are not able to buy a home. They are not able to get a mortgage. Why? Because they have predatory debt. And so if you were to remove that predatory debt, you would see millions of people who are now able to buy a home. You would see a housing market that just explodes. You would see one of the largest booms to the economy the United States has ever experienced. And it's simply because we stopped allowing predatory companies to prey on generations. That economic point that you make there, do you think it's just the individuals that comes back to that conversation that we were having earlier about members of Congress saying things are too expensive, that actually they're missing there's an economic benefit to ensuring people are housed, not just on the basic level that you look at in Florida. It costs taxpayers in the state $30,000 a year per unhoused person. Whereas if individuals have a home, they're able to get their life back on track, get back on their feet, enter the job market if they're not, and start contributing to society as they want to do 
through work, taxes. Well, it's insane. I mean, the fact that people are not making the financial argument to every single thing that we are proposing blows my mind. You just mentioned that an unhoused, a, chronic, uh, a, a chronically unhoused individual in Florida, the average taxpayer pays $33,000 a year for. Now, if you provide housing for those individuals, the average taxpayer would then pay $11,000. So you're already paying for it. You just pay three times as much as you should be paying for it, and you purposefully keep people from getting their lives back on track. That blows my mind. On top of that, universal child care has an ROI of 1.25, which means every dollar you put in, you get $1.25 back. That is a great freaking investment. You talk about Medicare for all. It's cheaper than what we do now. Financially, it's the better option. On top of that, you're getting rid of middlemen and predatory companies, the insurance companies. You're getting rid of the middlemen that you pay 30% to, and they do nothing. But like every single thing that we are proposing economically and financially is a good investment or the right choice. But nobody makes that argument, or at least they don't make it effectively, and they need to start doing that. Because especially for conservatives, let's be honest here. At this point, progressives, progressives, progressivism, it is classical conservatism. It is the belief that monopolies, oligarchs, corporate cartels, trusts are killing capitalism. They are killing the free market. They are killing innovation. They are killing the ability for people to actually work hard and get a better life. And so what blows my mind is that progressives have not realized that they actually have huge allies, especially in the classical conservatism movement. And if they're able to combine forces on that, you can drive the corporate wings out of both parties. And I think that we are seeing that, especially 12 years after we had the first bailouts. Now we're having another one. Well, that I mean, we saw what happened after 2008. We had the Occupy movement and we had the Tea Party swing out of that. I think that we are on the precipice of watching an even bigger populist movement sweep the country. And I think that it's going to start in the younger generations. Do you think that when these Republicans are attacking progressives for supposedly socialist ideas, actually they're just not realizing that they agree on the same idea, that people want the federal government out of their life, they want to be able to make something for themselves, and they want to be able to get out there and be part of a society that they contribute towards. Well, it's a free market argument, right? Like in, in, in the medical industry, like the, in the healthcare industry, we want to be able to choose our doctor. We want to be able to choose our hospital. We don't want anyone to tell us who we can and cannot go see and who in, we can and cannot be treated by. And who does that right now? Insurance companies. So what we are talking about is actually giving people a choice. We are talking about an actual free market. We are talking about getting rid of price fixing. Because right now, we're not allowed to negotiate drug prices here in the U.S. with pharmaceutical companies. I'm sorry. But when was that? When, I mean, when, when is that a conservative idea? And so what we've really started to understand, and I think people are starting to realize now, is you can use the same words that have been used against the poor for this long and flip it back around. I mean, that's one thing Republicans have been so good at for 30, 40 years is they use words and they use phrases and they focus test them until they are effective. They don't have good policies, but they're able to connect emotionally with people and give them this sense of almost like fulfillment 
And so, like, when people use the word socialism, well, socialism for who? They said, we don't want socialism. Well, you already have socialism. You have corporate socialism where your money is taken and given to a few individuals. Well, we don't want handouts. Well, we don't either. We don't want corporate welfare. We don't want corporate handouts, and yet we've been doing that for 30, 40 years. I mean, you can literally take almost every single thing that a conservative has said for the last 30, 40 years that has been most effective and flip it around and actually use it and go on the attack. And so what we're really starting to see is that people are starting to connect with these ideas that the reason that they don't have a good paying job is not because of someone who is poorer than them. It is not because of an immigrant or a refugee. The reason they don't have a good paying job is because you have giant companies who have come in, destroyed competition, knocked out all the family-owned businesses, knocked out all the innovation, and they've replaced those good-paying jobs with jobs that pay a third and that you can barely survive on. And then they tell you that, oh, well, the reason that you can't have more is because somebody else is taking it from you. They're scapegoating. And what we're doing now is we're refocusing and saying, no, the reason we can't have more is because of you. And we're giving people an actual enemy. It's the correct enemy, finally. It's the actual foil. And when you do that and when you effectively turn people's anger and emotions and frustration back at the right direction, there's a lot that can be accomplished. You talked about healthcare in that answer there. And healthcare has become a hot button topic in America with proposals like Medicare for All called radical and proposed uh, as being some sort of revolutionary idea, even though what you lay out there, as you talk about, it's actually about ensuring that people have more freedom, more independence from the insurance companies. You simply believe that healthcare is a human right and that everyone should have access to affordable healthcare. Why do you think it's become such a politicized issue? Money, marketing, and distribution. Um, with my job, my job is basically to catch corporate fraud. It's basically to catch suppliers who are trying to make money by selling a fake product. What I've realized is those suppliers have gotten very good at a couple things. Their marketing, their branding, and their distribution. They have fake products, but they have the nicest wrapping. They have the best marketing. They have the prettiest pictures. And they're able to dress up everything. And so what we really understand now is that you have to get past that. The progressive movement, despite having the best product, has never actually been able to market itself effectively. It has never been able to brand itself effectively. It has never been able to distribute its ideas effectively. And so what we have to do is we have to play that game. We have to do those things. They are able to effectively make an argument, right or wrong, but get it out to enough people that it takes hold, that it gains traction in, 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 the, mar in, in, in the idea market. And so that is why it has become politicized, because it is a good investment for them to pour $10 million into marketing these ideas, as long as at the end of the day, they get back a return of 30 or 40 million. Like that's a good investment. And so for them, it's worth pouring a lot of money into muddying the idea market, making it seem like this is a bad idea or making it seem like they're indispensable. That's how middlemen have worked since the, since the dawn of time. They're not useful, 
but they make people believe that if they were not there, then the market wouldn't survive. When in fact, if they weren't there, the market would be better. That's just how middlemen work. That's how scammers work. We have to get rid of them. Congress often discusses tax cuts, but when it does, the conversation generally turns to tax cuts for corporations, wealthier individuals. You've highlighted how the best way to provide a middle class tax cut is to lower public and private taxes on the services that most Americans use and need. Again, that link there between the progressive movement that you're part of and also the Republican movement that they believe in lower taxation. What would you propose if elected here to achieve that tax cut? So this is where it's brilliant, right? You have to frame it in a way that makes people understand that there are two kinds of taxes. There's the taxes that you pay to the government for services, and there are the taxes that you pay to private companies for services. Typically, the ones you pay to the private companies, those aren't considered taxes. But at the same day, at the same time, if you could get the same services from the government for cheaper than you could get from a private company, that's a tax. When Obamacare was passed, the Supreme Court said that premiums and deductibles, those should be considered taxes. Now, what's brilliant about that is it doesn't matter if it's from a private company or from the government. If it's a premium or deductible, it is a tax. And so what you have to say is, look, if you were to do, well, let's just say Medicare for all and remove the insurance companies, guess what? You're not paying 30% of what you were before and getting the same thing. I get very upset right now when people talk about tax cuts, and they only mean cutting taxes from the government. Because you could get $300 back from the government, but then you still have to pay $8,000 for health care to a private company or a private insurance company. Why wouldn't you want $8,000 back instead of $300? Like, where is the benefit? What is better, $300 from the government or $8,000 that you don't have to pay to a private company? I think it's the $8,000. I think most people agree at this point because the numbers are just so drastically different that they don't care where it comes from. As long as they have more money, life is better. On a similar issue, we see how ways to bring more money into people's pockets or to prevent money from being taken from their pockets is by addressing the drug price situation in America with drug prices continuing to soar. You, on your website, you use the example of a bottle of insulin where it can be made for $6, sold for 12 in many countries, but in the U.S. can go as high as $350 per bottle. With situations like this, individuals in America find themselves having to ration medicine, sometimes to a deadly effect. How do you rein in these corporations that are, there's no other word for it, exploiting Americans who are ill and in need of medicine? Well, for me, they're not just exploiting just Americans. They're exploiting my father. My father's type 1 diabetic. And unless we have really good insurance, he's going to have to ration. Right now, we don't have a free market with pharmaceutical drug prices. We don't have a free market with pharmaceutical companies. Right now, we're not allowed to negotiate prices of drugs. That's insane. No other country in the world would we create price fixing like that and say it's okay? I mean, this is this is the same same argument we're using for everything else. I mean, if you're actually conservative, you don't want price fixing. You don't want monopolies. You don't want to invest in drugs and in companies and never get an investment back, never get your money back, never get a return on that investment. 
And right now we have laws on the books that say we're not allowed to negotiate pricing. I'm sorry, what? So, yeah, right now in the United States, insulin could be 350 bucks. So you're telling me that a 2x return isn't good enough. You have gotten your price fixing so well. You've done it so well for so long that you're making $350 instead of 12 per bottle of insulin. And the people who are getting screwed there are the people who need it. And so what we are talking exactly what you said, they're preying on Americans. It's fraud. That, plain and simple, it is fraud. And it needs to be called out. Do you think that the reason that this has occurred to such an extent in America in particular is because of politicians to capitulate to industries that keep them in office? We obviously hear about the issue of money and politics being a severe problem, but there doesn't seem to be a coherent link between politicians that are supposed to be working for the people and politicians that allow drug companies to price gouge individuals who are reliant on medicine to survive. It always comes back to money. I mean, people can talk about like ideals and ideology. It always comes back to money. Right now, to get on the ballot here in Florida, it costs almost 10 grand. It's over 10 grand just to get on the ballot, which means no young person can run. It means nobody without family money can run unless you're willing to give up basically your life savings. On top of that, the only way to actually win and get the marketing, get the distribution, get all the advertising out there and run a successful campaign that is able to actually compete in the market, you have to be funded by somewhere. The easiest place for you to get funded is by going to a company and saying, look, you get me elected and, um, you know, maybe I write a law or two where you get $10 million. I mean, you give me 2800 and maybe at the end of the day you're going to profit. It's an investment for companies right now to buy off politicians. Now, it's legally buying them off. It's legal donations. But let's be honest, it's bribes. That's what it is. And so at the end of the day, unless you are able to remove the bribes and the fraud from the political system in general, unless you are able to publicly fund elections, unless you are able to make it so that every single person has the same amount of money and voice that can go into an election, you will never get rid of this. So one of the things that I propose, and it's also one of the things that Andrew Yang, Humanity Forward, have pushed as well, is basically saying that every single person in the United States in a publicly funded election gets 100 bucks that they can put for any politician that they want. And that's it. That's the only amount that is allotted. That's the only amount that can be spent per person. But every single person, and I say person, not a company, has the same voice in the United States as far as who they want to represent. And on top of that, not only would it give people the same voice, it would allow grassroots organizations to flourish. It would allow working class people to run and build a team and actually get their voices heard. It would allow the best organizers, not the best fundraisers, to win seats in Congress. There's been a recent discussion and debate over the actions of police in America surrounding discriminatory behavior and the use of excessive force from law enforcement officers, mostly against minority individuals. What solutions can be taken here to tackle this injustice in the criminal justice system? Because it's clearly got to a point where members of Congress can no longer ignore what's going on across the country. Yeah, 
it's uh, so there's a couple things. Um, you know, this is a, a little bit of a, a longer story, but it's gotten to the point where a high school soccer coach could have somebody call, say that he's trespassing on a field, and two police officers show up, arrest him, smash his face into the ground, punch him in the groin, and uh, threaten to tase him, and then he spends a night in a private prison, is not allowed to sue those officers because of something called qualified immunity. And at the end of the day, he spends about $3,500 on a lawyer in just getting out of the situation and has no repercussions occur for the officers who, that, who lied on the police report multiple times. That happened to me a year and a half ago. If it can happen to me, I cannot imagine who it is happening to. It happened in front of 2,000 people. There are 200 people. So I cannot imagine what kinds of things are happening when nobody's looking. What we are talking about is an entire system that is built on taking money from the poor, the middle class. It is built on the idea that there is no accountability when people in power actually screw up. So for me, like that, uh, criminal justice reform is personal because I've, I've been through it. It's personal for so many people now because they have actually been through it or they know people have been through it. It has gotten to such a point where you cannot talk to a single person, or at least I can't find one, who has not had someone in their family or their friends arrested and gone through some sort of absolutely ridiculous thing that involved our criminal justice system or police officers. And yeah, on top of that, it is happening primarily to our minority populations. And so like, it cannot be ignored anymore. And on top of that, we should, it's the same thing we talked about earlier. It is being reactionary instead of proactive. Right now, we would rather pay and, and give more money to punishing after the fact things that happen than to preventing the things from happening in the first place. It's a question of priorities. It's a question of how we actually want to deal with the people around us. It's a question of what our values are. And at this moment, our values not just in the criminal justice field, but in every single industry are, we are going to react as opposed to prevent. We see this with the pandemic right now. We would rather react and spend way more money than we ever should have instead of prevent something like this from happening. And so I think it's, I think it's not just a moral issue. It's, it's an ideology. And I think that unless you are able to change that ideology – I don't know that much will ever change because you can paint a mural, you can change a street sign, but unless you actually change the laws that allow it to keep happening, nothing will ever fundamentally change. Finally, what would be your closing message to voters in Florida's third congressional district why they should pick you as the Democratic nominee and then elect you as their new congressman. It's, it's the pitch, right? I mean, the basic pitch, and this is what we've been saying since the beginning, is that if you work eight hours a day, you should be able to afford a home. You should be able to start a family. You should be able to have enough money left over at the end of the week to go to the movie theater with your family and not feel bad about it afterwards and not feel like, oh, am I going to be able to afford groceries next week? That's the way it should be. And so at this point, we don't have that. We have people working two or three jobs just for survival. So at the end of the day, what we are talking about and the policies that I and our team 
are actually presenting and trying to get accomplished, they're for everyone. Not just me, not just us, it's for all of us. And so right now we are running an entire congressional campaign with 50 people under the age of 23. I am the old man of the group. I'm 26. Our entire staff is under the age of 23. Why? Because we understand and we have the lived experience for understanding what needs to change and also the urgency because if we don't fix some of these things, if we don't fix climate change, we're screwed. Like Florida's underwater. And that's not me being dramatic. That's just what's going to happen. Like if we do not fix the housing crisis, none of us will ever be able to buy a home. And so it matters because we're living through it. And it matters because we are the ones who are actually going out there and trying to change it. Because if we don't, we don't have any other choice. And so that's really why I'm running. And that's really what we're trying to accomplish. We're not asking for much. What we're asking for is not radical. It's simply being able to work hard and actually achieve the American dream someday. That's it. Adam Christensen, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I told you it would be. That was Adam Christensen, who's running for office in Florida's 3rd Congressional District. You can find out more about him and his campaign on Twitter at AC4Congress2020 and at ForTheManyNotJustMe.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time. Goodbye.